listening to WRBH Radio 88.3 FM. This is your host of Dinner Party, Chef Amy Sins. Today, my guest is Mr. Joseph Dunn, a local entrepreneur with a focus on cultural heritage and tourism. He has over 25 years of experience focusing on Louisiana's very distinct culture. Thanks for joining me and Mr. Dunn on the show today. And here is our recorded interview. When I think dinner parties, okay, I remember being a little kid and my mom would have us like polish the silverware and she would have a dinner party and there was always that like bright orange cheese ball with the pecans on it and all this stuff. And then she would say, all right, go to bed. And then you would just look down the hall and I would see these grown-ups having so much fun and interacting and having that conversation and you realize it's it's kind of part of who we are in South Louisiana to bring people together. And it breaks my heart when I go somewhere and everyone is sitting across the table from each other on their cell phone. I don't know if they're having conversations with each other through their phone or what, but it's like we've kind of lost some of that charm of the dinner party where I right. feel like we became... I don't know. We were, we had interesting conversations. We became more open-minded. We learned a little something because a really good dinner party brings together people that don't know each other. Exactly. I don't know. Exactly. This is my, my take on dinner well, and parties. You, and then, and then you, it's fun also when you have that thing where everybody brings, I like the idea of the potluck, right? That's fun too. Um, and but there are always the same things that come up sometimes at the potlucks because you're always going to have like the green bean casserole and you know like the the family uh, get togethers for Christmas or for um, or, or for for Thanksgiving where everybody has their own specialty right like my my aunt makes that I don't even know what they call it I call it the green stuff it's like green avocado and whipped cream and I, like I have no idea I don't know what this it's is the green, it's the green stuff I just call it the green stuff I love it but that's what she always brings um, and we somehow or another have always gotten the bread and we always end up with the rolls like something that's easy yeah that's what you give the per- you give the rolls to the person who's gonna like forget what they're supposed to bring because right. you know they can right. run to the corner but store one of my <laughs> things though that I've kind of uh, now for the family stuff because my my culinary tradition and, and folkways is um, Florida parishes. Um, I didn't grow up in New Orleans um, or in a place that was sort of historically more Creole or, or French with that. So, you know, the kind of food that I grew up eating is what you're going to find in Mississippi, Alabama, North Louisiana, with every now and again um, when we could get seafood up in St. Helena Parish because it's not a, a seafoody place. My mother made the most amazing crawfish etouffee. Um, she could make a butter roux that was just so creamy and smooth and, and, and good. Uh, tomatoes? No tomatoes? Um, a tad of tomato paste in it. Okay. But no whole tomatoes for her etouffee. You know, what you were saying about that etouffee and it, me immediately going, is it a tomato? Is it not a tomato? Because we're all kind of 
judging each other based on how we're all responding to this question. <laughs> the two, the, uh, I call it the gumbo wars, right? I call it the gumbo wars and it's all about is there a tomato, is there not a tomato? And if you start really scratching and digging, every family's gonna have their own little recipe. And those things, I was thinking about this um, uh, earlier and we were talking about all these great things that you can, um, your vegetables and your pickles and stuff like that. I grew up in that kind of tradition where um, my grandparents had this giant garden. It was legit, like two acres. My grandfather planted it every year. There was corn, there was peas, there were snap beans, there were, he made the most perfect tomatoes. Um, and we spent the summer times with my grandparents. My sister and I did um, getting up early in the morning before the sun came out, before it got hot, going in the, in the, in the garden and picking things and then sitting on the front porch. This sounds so cliche, but sitting on the front porch with the ceiling fans whirring in the rocking chairs, snapping peens and shelling, uh, shelling beans and uh, shucking corn. And my sister and I were always just after our grandparents to tell us stories. Yeah. And so, so what that, kind of stories did they tell? Well, it was just about them growing up in, in Louisiana, again, up in the Florida parishes, uh, in the in the 19-teens and the 1920s, and what life was like before cars and going to school on a horse and things like that, which now seems so, so very, very far away. Um, and, and my grandfather had one cow that he milked by hand every day. And... I never had milk from a grocery store before I was 20 years old. How cool. They had their own home pasteurizer that was on the counter. He milked the cow every afternoon, brought it in in a, in a white enamel bucket, and we poured the milk from the refrigerator. It was in these um, agate, white agate pans. And you'd have to, with a spoon, scrape the cream back and pour it into the glass. And so I grew up with this very sort of... Um, seasonal food and seasonal eating and in the summertime, right? I mean, and, and my grandfather raised beef cattle. So we would slaughter a cow in September. The slaughterhouse was literally right down the road. Um, we'd get all this meat. And so you'd eat meat through the winter. And then in the springtime, you're planting the garden. The garden starts to come in. By that time, your, uh, your, your vegetables are starting to come in and your beef supply has gotten down to the ground meat basically because yeah. you've eaten all the steaks and everything else yeah all the good stuff all first. the good stuff is going <laughs> on the roast and all the steaks and all that's going now you just have ground beef and so you're using the ground beef and you're stuffing tomatoes and bell peppers with it and i can't count for you the number of times that i would just walk down to the pond with a cane pole fish some brim out of the pond bring them back to the house clean them my grandmother would stick them in the in the in the fryer with some you know uh, and then we'd have the, the fried squash and things like that and the fresh cut tomatoes. And we just ate very along the seasons. And nobody was overweight. <laughs> it was just a whole different way of life that I'd love to be able to figure out how to get back into it. You know, I, I'm kind of with you on that because I... Um I don't think it was as hot there back then as it is now because I, it I, because I get really motivated that I'm going to garden and I'm going to do all these outdoor things and then I go outside and I'm like, mm, maybe not today, right? But there is, you know, a part of me wonders is that way of life that you're describing, was that old-fashioned way of life? Was that 
Louisiana way of life? Was that, you know, rural way of life? Like, what was the, I guess, the magic that was happening and what was happening in other places at the well, same there's, time? Well, there, there, there's always going to be this, this conflict between urban and rural and how you marry those two together. And what's happening, you know, food-wise, what's happening food-wise in the city is gonna be very different from what's happening food-wise in the country. And I think coming back to this idea about tomatoes, right, and, and how, we, how we prepare things, some of that's family traditions, I think a lot of that's dictated by people's individual tastes. And, you know, if you think about, you've grown your own vegetables, you've grown your, you've, you have your own chickens, and you have all that kind of stuff, the gumbo that you're gonna make when you have killed your pig and made your own boucherie and made your own sausage and killed your own chicken and you've grown your own vegetables is going to taste very, very different from the gumbo that you're going to make if you go to the grocery store and you get your chicken and your sausage from there and all your vegetables from the produce section. And so I, I think a lot of that plays into it, into it as well. Well, you know, I feel like there's this, I, I mean, even this week that people are writing articles in the paper and all of a sudden it's like gumbo weather gumbo season and then the debates win or the debates happen and what my my daddy taught me you will never win a gumbo argument just no, like can't. walk away from the gumbo argument amy do not engage and you know part of it is because you make your gumbo the way your grandma taught you exactly you know and i'm not arguing with somebody's mama or their grandma or their uncle at the deer camp, right? Because exactly. they're doing it the right way. But I also feel like there are some aspects of it that still need to be held sacred. Does that make sense? Yeah, uh, yeah. You know, we're fighting amongst ourselves as ridiculous as it is in the community is who's right. And we're never going to know who's right. Well, but, but there's also that, that idea of evolving taste and evolving products and evolving access to things. You know, uh, I knew people when I was growing up who, you know, very rural, um, economically challenged, who literally, if they didn't kill or fish what they were going to eat, they weren't going to eat. Um, I don't know that that reality exists so much anymore as it did, you know, only 35, 40 years ago. Uh, because, you know, we have mass consumerism, we have access to things, um, and, you know, you can go any time of the year to the grocery store and get things that historically you only got when you were able to grow them. Um, and so access to products has changed our the way, that we, the way that we eat and the way that we relate to those things that we eat. Um, you know, it was a, I remember as a kid, you know, it was a big deal for us to have tacos, right? That was a huge Taco thing. Taco night. <laughs> like, yeah, tacos were a huge thing because, uh, you know, it wasn't part of our culinary tradition. And now I can have tacos anytime that I want to because I can just go to the restaurant or I can go to the grocery store and I can get all of the things that I need to make the tacos, which weren't always readily available to everybody. So, um, yeah, it's it's fun to have these these discussions about food and our relationship to it. And, but I do agree with you that some things should be should be held held sacred. I mean, there, there are butter roos for some things and there are oil roos for some things and you don't mix them. Yeah, okay, so this one will blow your mind. I'm not really a rice fan. I really like potato salad with my gumbo. But I don't like rice with my red beans because my 
mother's mother, my maternal grandmother, made the most amazing biscuits. And there is nothing like good, pasty red beans on biscuits. It's so good. And, um, yeah, yeah. Love it. One of the things that I think is interesting, you know, as we're talking about speaking French and and how it's kind of gone away, but when I was in school uh, with Codafil and uh, it was starting to come back, mm-hmm. especially like in Ascension Parish and in other areas, but every single time I travel to France and people ask me where I'm from, I say, je suis Louisianaise. I don't say American, right? And what is it about Louisiana and France? I mean, we know there's this connection, but why why is that so much more welcoming to say than like, I'm an American and I'm rolling up? Because we're Atlantis to them. We're like people from Atlantis. We're not supposed to exist anymore, right? I mean, it's been since 1803 that we were sold to the United States. Um, my family roots in Louisiana go back to the late 17-teens or to the 1720s. My uh, sixth or seventh great-grandfather was the master locksmith here in the the French Quarter, which was the city, and it was the whole city of New Orleans then in the 1740s and 1750s. So the roots are, are really deep, but we're not supposed to exist anymore. Um, and I've had some phenomenal experiences. I know you with with food and me with, with tourism and you know, with journalists and being able to take them and show them things and introduce them to things that they kind of have the idea don't exist anymore and when they see them, when they hear them, there are these visceral kinds of experiences that, that can occur. I was with a journalist from Paris a number of years ago, taking him around South Louisiana and showing him things and talking to him. And you know, he was sort of not to go into stereotypes or cliches, but exactly what you imagine a French journalist would be. You know, complaining about everything, nothing was right, da da da. And so I don't remember what town we were in, but we stopped at a little place to get, you know, a quick bite to eat. And uh, we were speaking French, obviously. And this little old lady kind of tottered over and she said in French, so y'all were speaking French. And I'm like, yeah. And so we explained, you know, what we were doing and where the journalist was from. And he melted. It's, it's, one, of the, it's one of those, like little anecdotes that when I start to talk about it, I get really teary-eyed about it and I get choked up about it because it was one of those moments that you could not choreograph. There's no way that you could ever, ever have choreographed that and made it come off like it did because he then had this conversation with this little old lady in South Louisiana in French and when we got back in the car, He said to me, that's the first time in 30 years that I've heard my grandmother's voice. Oh, because it... Because he was from France and his grandmother was this little rural French lady in in a little farm in a little village somewhere in France. And that still exists here. And trying to, trying sometimes to articulate that kind of visceral connection that people from other French-speaking places can have 
with French speakers in Louisiana is really difficult sometimes for um, for people who only speak English to grasp um, because there are these again very deep and very visceral kinds of connections that that can happen um, yes because there there's something about that um, like you can almost see and hear your past in someone's mm -hmm. voice oh, exactly. if that makes sense you know exactly. knowing that there's there's some kind of connection and you you even if you you can't put a finger on it there there's you're seeing something in that moment that is bringing you back to another moment no, in your life absolutely. and you know coming back to food right um i heard somewhere that i don't know if it was a podcast i was listening to or if i read it or, or what but there's that sensory memory. You, you have a sensory memory for music and for for taste and for smells. And there is, there's a word for it. It's probably one of those long German words. That, <laughs> but there's a specific word that I can never remember that describes that sensory memory of always wanting to come back to the first time that you taste something and always being sort of on this quest to find the first time that you heard jazz in the street or the first time that you heard a Zydeco two-step or the first time that you tasted étouffée or shrimp remoulade or something like that. And so we're just always on this quest to recreate those things that are in our sensory memory. And, you know, I... We ha I think we're lucky here in South Louisiana that we probably have so many things in our sensory memory that we've been able to experience that, uh, you know, I can close my eyes and I can smell and I can taste my daddy's dear sauce piquant, right? I can just, and I can just, I can close my eyes and I can, I can feel that dish, mm -hmm, you know, mm -hmm. I feel that dish and there's almost something even more incredible when you get to be with someone the first time they get to exactly, have that experience. Exactly, and I say that when, 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 I, do, when I do tours, because um, I have a tour guide license and I do a lot of walking tours um, in the French Quarter with visitors from French-speaking places, and I just love to stand back. And I tell them this, I'm like, I enjoy so very much being able to stand back and watch you experience this for the first time. Because there's so much of this stuff that we can't, because we grew up with it, and it's so integrally part of who we are, that we can't have those experiences for the first time. And it's just so amazing to see other people, you know, their, their eyes open, or, you know, their, their ears sort of perk up when they hear the music, or they start to taste things, or they start to see things that they've never, they've never seen before. Um, you know, so we have all these different senses, the sight, the smell, the hearing, and all of that, that this, I sometimes say this place can be a little bit overwhelming. Uh, absolutely. People from here can be a little overwhelming too, oh, we're right? Intense. We're intense. <laughs> we can, like, we make a statement whenever we show up somewhere. And if I throw somebody into the quarter on a busy day with the calliope and the music and the tripping over the cups and that that could be a lot, it's a lot. for someone to it's absorb and so i think it's also our duty uh as louisianians to help them navigate that kind of approach it slowly 
but there's something, and I don't know if it goes to our, our roots or where we all came from, the fact that we're a melting pot. We all want to accept that challenge. And it's important to us as a community that every person who's here gets those first feelings, those first thoughts that they can experience it and they're not overwhelmed by it. Like something in our soul that wants everyone to love this place as much as we do. Yeah. And I think that also has to, I mean, some of that has to come back to the early parts of the colony when everybody was just trying to survive. Um, and, you know, trying to figure out how to navigate this, you know, hurricane, mosquito, snake, alligator infested place that, that we call home and that we can't ima- I, I have a really hard time imagining myself living anywhere. You can't recreate this. No. It, it can't be artificially recreated. No. No. People have tried. No, people have tried. I remember there was a fiasco, I think, up in the Pacific Northwest a couple of years ago when somebody tried to do a Mardi Gras and it just went <laughs> really bad. Um, <laughs> but, yeah, the... I was going to say something. Oh, you, you mentioned that whole local ecosystem of, of food. And there's a phenomenal movement that they started up in Quebec, in Canada, several years ago. It's called Economusée, um, E-C-O-N-O, Musée for Museum. And what they figured out was one of the ways that they might be able to stem um, young people from exiting smaller villages or rural areas, um, or even bringing them back, was to recreate these little micro-economies within those regions and within those places so that they could create jobs, so that they could bring young people back. And so those traditional foodways and traditional um, um, crafts and things like that weren't, weren't being lost. So you, you um, can go to these places that are designated as these little économusées spaces and villages and see where you know the young farmer has come back in and he's he's growing the alfalfa that is being fed to these cows on this farm that is producing the the cheese that is being sold in this store and it's that whole little um economic and cultural ecosystem that i mean i think we have here um i don't know that i mean you're being a chef you probably know all those people but i don't think perhaps that we we promote them enough or that we make them accessible enough to our own people and to, to visitors to see how all of it works together. No, I agree. And I think that's going to be our next conversation whenever we get together is, is how we can help to kind of bring our community together around that and about our food and our history and, and everything uh, because it's important that we stay in touch with our roots, our people, and who is keeping our community going right absolutely so for my listeners out there this i I could talk to mr joseph dunn all day uh so but we don't have all day we're we're all out of time but uh Thank you, Joseph. Thank you so much for having me. This has been absolutely delightful. Well, you've been listening to WRBH Radio 88.3 FM. This is the host of Dinner Party with Chef Amy Sins. So I'm Chef Amy. Until next time, ciao. Ciao.